Welcome to another episode of our Mosaic Station podcast slash video series. Um, this is part of our uh, series for Native American Heritage Month, where we're doing the Native uh, Faculty Spotlight Showcase. Um, we're very excited to be able to um, have a couple of different conversations and videos focused on some of our Native uh, and Indigenous faculty here at San Jose State. Hopefully, you know, we have some students in the audience who will be able to learn a little bit more about who we have here on campus, some of our resources. Um, today, we're very happy to be joined by Dr. Carrie Malloy, um, who uh, is a brand new faculty member this semester, um, who comes to us from previously Humboldt State, but um, I'll let Carrie introduce himself. Well, first of all, hello, and thank you for asking me to do this. It's great. My name is Kerry Malloy. Um, I am currently an assistant professor of global humanities in the Department of Humanities at San Jose State University. Um, I've been here since roughly August, so about two months, and I'm learning all the new ropes here. Previously, I was at um, Humboldt State University, our sister campus in Northern California, uh, true Northern California for those that the area is the North. If you fold California in half, it's the it's the center. Um, so to get to where I was from, you got to go like five and a half hours north, and then slam on your brake an hour south of the Oregon border. Mm -hmm. So I was there for seven years, where I was a lecturer in the Department of Native American Studies. That's that's awesome. Yeah, I know. I know it's a, it's a bit of contention, particularly for people who live. Sacramento and North mm -hmm. of what the true North is in California. Um, I know people who, who particularly again, Sacramento and North, who will not call anything South of Sacramento, Northern California. They just call us all Central Californians. I think they're right. <laughs> uh, I, I, think, uh, I think when you make the transition from a two lane highway to anything with more than two lanes, that's where, that's where southern central california starts <laughs> i mean it is a totally different vibe for people who've never gone north of sacramento the vibe is 100 percent different oh, um, very laid back very yeah, laid back and slow yeah. a, a lot more rural a lot of, a lot of mountains a lot of uh, forests um once you get to especially shasta area it's gorgeous up there mm -hmm. It's incredible. The natural beauty is amazing. Um, where I'm particularly from in Humboldt County, it's redwoods and oceans and mountains. So it's just, it, it's nature all the time. Um, so you don't, you don't see too many skyscrapers there. <laughs> the tallest thing we have are redwood trees. So it's, it's a little different. It's just Yeah, great. totally. Um, so uh, can you give us a little bit more about your background, your identities a little bit? Yeah. Well, my identities are a little complex, like everybody, so let me just start at the beginning. Um, I was actually born in a place called Pine Ridge, South Dakota, which is the Oglala Sioux Reservation, or Oglala Lakota Reservation. Um, it has the distinction of being one of the poorest counties in the United States. So the average total income for a family there in 2019 was $5,000. Wow. You're, you're talking about a very poor community. My parents were um, elementary school teachers at the time, and they were teaching. My dad was teaching in a um, the BIA day school. My mother was also teaching there. Um, so that's where I was born. I am Yurok and Karuk. Those are two tribes from Northern California. They're along the Klamath River. 
So the Yurok's are on the southern end of the Klamath to the Pacific Ocean, and the Kruks are sort of mid-Klamath mid up into the Oregon border. So those are the my, on my native side of where I come from. My dad's family is now, we gotta be careful here because I'll offend half the family if I leave them out. So primarily Irish, there is some Danish in there too and some Norwegian. So we got, I think we covered everybody. So I think we're okay there. So I started life there. I started in South Dakota. Um, I have an interesting history when I was born is that my doctor at the time had a 96% uh, infant mortality rate, which means that out of every 100 children born, only four survived. So I am wow. of that small group of people. Um, and that's, that speaks to the, the level of healthcare on reservations at the time and what was going on. From there, I moved, well, my family moved. I sort of went with them, so I, had, I sort of had to. Um, though I almost got forgotten. My parents got in the car in South Dakota and my mom turned to my dad and said, um, are you going to bring your son with you? You left him in the house. So, <laughs> so I almost, it's, just, yeah, it's just a small oversight, I think. But I got, we moved to a place called um, Quinault, Washington, the Quinault Indian Reservation. Up on, you can find it on a map for um, any of, anyone listening or watching that knows the Twilight series, find the Quileute and just go north. And that's where, we're, that's where we were at. So I grew up on the Pacific, primarily in the Pacific Northwest amongst the Quinault um, and the Salish people and around what's called the Indian Shaker Church, which is a hybrid church of Catholicism and native religions combined. Um, lived there for a while, actually moved to Central California for a year, it was too hot. So we packed up and um, ended up back in Humboldt County where my parents were both born and raised. And then I grew up I grew up there and went to school there. So that, okay. that that's my background that way. And it sort of folds into, you know, a lot of what I ended up doing, what I've been doing and what I will continue to do. It all comes together. So I'm, I'm, I'll speak to that as we get to those questions. But yeah, so that's, that's my background. So I've been a little bit of everywhere, but nowhere really significant. <laughs> okay. That, that's interesting. Wow. Okay. So your parents kind of kind of did the full circle back to where yeah. they started from, and that's. So would you consider Humboldt like your hometown then at that point, or? Yeah, Humboldt became my hometown, but it's funny. Um, it, it, I have a tendency when I'll say I'll talk about, oh, I should probably go home at some point. Everyone looks at me because I'm there, like you're in Eureka, and I'm like, oh, sorry, I'm talking about Pine Ridge. I, I, <laughs> Um, my in-laws were planning a trip back to South Dakota. I said, oh, it would be nice to visit home. And they all looked at me really weird. So home, home sometimes I use the word, I use the word to refer to different places, but you know, my home is pretty much right now is in, you know, split between San Jose and Eureka because um, my husband still lives up in um, Eureka. So I'm traversing the highways quite a bit, uh, going back and forth while we get, do the full transition over the next year. But yeah, Eureka's pretty much home right now um, and part-time in San Jose and I'm learning to deal with the 20 degree difference in temperature <laughs> either yes. way. Yes, it is very different. Mm -hmm. um, I'm glad you're able to start in August. You kind of got a peak at summer. Yeah. Um, it feels very different down here. Yes, it does. Even your win even the winter's <laughs> different. Everyone's like walking around cold. I'm like, okay, this is normal. <laughs> so it's an adjustment period. 
Yeah, for sure. So you mentioned that you teach uh, global humanities. Do you want to go into that a little bit? Yeah, I was hired to come in and work with the Department of Humanities. Um, I'm also the coordinator of the Humanities Honors Program. So what, what we do is it's a four core sequence that students start in their freshman year and they take all the way through their sophomore year that covers primarily all of the GEs except for the Bs um, and Area F, of course, which is the Ethnic Studies component. So you, you work with students for, you know, the nice part is you work with a cohort of students for two years and you get to know them pretty intimately and they get to work with you and you're teaching with a team of four, uh, it's a team taught course of four individuals. So there's three other faculty and each of you come from a different um, area of expertise. So art historian, you have a political scientist, a psychology professor, and then you have me who is primarily genocide studies and Native American studies. So you get a, you get a very different experience than if you just took a straight history course or a straight philosophy course. So I'm working in that. I'm also looking at developing some digital humanities projects within that. But uh, as I said, it's the, my first venture here. So I'm sort of feeling my way, what can be done, what, you know, what's out there. Um, so that's what I'm doing right now. I'm not really sure what I'll be doing six or seven years from now, because it seems to always change. So sure, sure, sure. Um, and if we had students who are interested in maybe looking for you as an instructor, what classes are you teaching? Currently, I'm teaching HUM Humanities 2A, which is Modern World Cultures. Um, the next semester, I'll be teaching Humanities 2B. Um, if their students are interested in the Humanities Honors Program, they can just reach out to humanitieshonors at sjsu.edu or just reach out to me directly and we can talk about if it's a fit for them. Um, some, it's a six-unit course, so that does have some bearing on how you do it and in your GPA, of course, so we want to make sure that we all know what we're doing going into it and make sure that everyone's going to be successful. Yeah, definitely, definitely. That's awesome. Um, so you mentioned uh, cause. So of course, you know, we're, we're coming at this from a collegiate lens, right? Um, so I would love to talk a little bit about your experiences in college. Um, you mentioned going to school in Humboldt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did my undergraduate at Humboldt State. Um, and I did it in two parts. So <laughs> there's part A and part B. Uh, you know, like most students at the time, um, I started school in the 90s, so you, those listening can calculate my age, I won't tell you, but you, you can get a rough idea of how old I am. I started school in the 90s, um, what I call the pre-birth of the internet, email was just starting to come, come along, um, libraries were just starting to use mm -hmm. digital catalogs, um, so not so much a dinosaur, but somewhere in between yeah, yeah. <laughs> and humanity. So I started off, I started off as a journalism major, met my advisor, and that was a 15 minute conversation, walked out of his office and said, yeah, no. Um, and was a history major, teacher prep, I did a lot of different things. But it was, a, you know, the first time around was a little different for me because it was also a struggle. Um, you know, I have always known I am Yurok and Kuruk. That's never been something that's always been a part of who I am. Um, but I also, also have this other component, this non-native side. So it's always been between those identities. But at the same time, 
there was a third component to my identity that I was wrestling with, and that was being gay. Um, and how did that fit in? And it was, you know, college is really a time where all of a sudden, oh, here's all this incredible knowledge we want you to learn. But oh, by the way, this is also when you're going through this great identity crisis trying to figure out who you are. So you have these conflicts and there was a lot of that going on and just trying to figure out who and who I was um, and how I was going to embrace that. And, you know, at the time we're talking about a period of time where being gay wasn't necessarily evil, but it wasn't necessarily a good thing. So you always had, you were always balancing between these two ideas. And I, you know, there were no, there was no one, there was no role model at the time to look up to. There was no professors who were out, particularly native professors. There were very few native professors on campus at the time. Um, I believe there was one and a couple adjuncts who came in and out, but there was nobody there. So I struggled quite a bit. And then um, after about three and a half, four years, I made a decision to leave the university and I went to work for my tribe. And then I worked for them for about six years, four to six years. Uh, and then I ended up working for another tribe for several years. And then I had a 15 year gap between school. And then I came back as a, what is now called a non-traditional student. <laughs> um, I'm not really sure there is a traditional student, but that I will let the people who deal with those definitions work with that. Um, I came back and it was a good thing. I came back with a better idea of who I was and what I wanted to do. And I had completed, um, for any student out there who's struggling, my first time around, I actually completed all the degree requirements for a bachelor's in Native American studies. <laughs> All I actually needed to do was complete about four GE classes. Um, math and I are not good friends. Um, I'm convinced X and Y have an identity crisis because they can't decide whether they're a number or a letter. And we can have a philosophical debate about that. But math was a big battle for me. And so what I actually ended up having to do was go to junior college for a while. Mm -hmm complete all those degree requirements. Um, I proudly state that I have taken every math class that I've ever attempted three times, because that's how long it would take me to get through it. So don't worry if you're struggling, you can do it. I came back and I realized that Native American studies was a great degree to have and I could complete it within a year. But then I also decided at the same time that I also needed to broaden my horizons. Mm -hmm. And I got a second bachelor. So I have two bachelors. Uh, one is in Native American studies. The second is in economics. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, constant paradigm shift. So, um, I mean, not, not what I would have expected after your, your brief <laughs> soliloquy about whether math, uh, is, is, uh, good or not. <laughs> I, it, it, it forced me to work on the um, areas that I'm weak in. Um, I, I mean, I, I can do math, I can make it work, but it's, it's not my favorite thing, but it forced me to work in the areas. And one of the things I keep telling students is, you know, we talk about success and talk about focusing on where your strengths are, but we have an incredible opportunity, particularly at a university, is to build those areas and strengthen those areas where we're not that great. And a minor is an incredible place to improve your skill set. So if, you know, writing is a area you need help with, get an English minor. Math is an area, get a math minor. Get, get something that helps improve your skill set versus 
something you think an employer is going to look at because employers will look at your minor, but they're also going to look at, you know, can you communicate? Mm -hmm. Are, can you articulate yourself? Can, can you work independently? And those really show all of that combined. So, mm. so I did the degree in uh, <laughs> economics and I actually use a lot of economics in what I do now, but um, mm -hmm. and I decided that I needed to do something and I got a really rare opportunity is that the Native Studies Department at Humboldt at the time um, needed somebody to teach, uh, particularly a history course. And the chair and I have known each other for a while. And he asked, he said, and he's like, could you come and teach this for me? I said, I only have a bachelor's. I don't have a master's. He's like, well, you have the experience. You have 15 years of experience, plus you have this and we can bring you in. So I came and I started teaching with just a bachelor's. Uh, so it's a different story than most. And then I don't like to be bored. So I decided to do a full-time master's program in federal Indian law through the University of Tulsa College of Law out of Tulsa, Oklahoma. So it's an on, it was an online master's program taught by some of the leading attorneys in federal Indian law. Mm -hmm. So I was a full-time, I was teaching full-time and a full-time student. Mm -hmm. um, for those out there that are full-time students and full-time workers, I feel your pain. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you will get through it. It's not easy, but it's doable. And so I did that. And then I took a year off after getting my master's just to recoup and think about what I wanted to do. And I had an opportunity come up, um, a small school in Pennsylvania, Graz College, uh, was offering the very first doctorate in Holocaust and genocide studies. And I thought about it and that's an area that I'd worked in. I even with my work in Native American studies, I concentrated primarily on genocide. So I applied and I was in their first cohort. Um, and I completed that degree over the summer. I can tell you the exact date I defended my dissertation was the 7th of July. <laughs> um, and I was the first to finish the program. I was the, so it's a really interesting distinction, not only to be the first one to finish the program, but to be the first native person to have this particular doctorate. And so that, that's my educational journey. And, and I did my doctorate while a full-time, te while teaching full-time. So, yeah. um, this is actually probably wow. the first year in a long time that I haven't been a student at the same time, <laughs> a faculty. Yeah. yeah, I mean, definitely a lot of ups and downs in that story. That's an incredible story. Thank you so much for sharing it. And I, I, know, I know it seems trite to say inspirational, but I think for a lot of our students who may be struggling with their own educational or academic journeys, it's good to hear that there's, there are people who can survive it, that there is hope for I, it is important to understand that it's also, I, and I think this gets lost a lot, is we have a model of what we think education is, or a plan. This, is, this is how everybody should go through it. And that's great. I, I don't have a problem with that, except that we're all different and we all have our own things we're going through. And sometimes you need to take a break. I mean, I, I got asked once why, why I left school and I said, you know, I left because I didn't really know what I, what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And it was, I needed time to go. I needed time to go and be for lack of a better word, stupid. 
I needed to go out and actually do some things that weren't actually like, okay, that was not the best life decision to make and learn, learn a little bit to come back and have a better idea. Um, I, I, you know, I'm tell everybody, like, if you looked at my undergraduate transcript, you'd be like, what, <laughs> what was he doing? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I, honestly, I can tell you, I don't know what I was doing, but right. Right. yeah, I think, I think for anybody out there that's struggling is, you know, you'll get through it. You're going to have to find your way. And there's plenty of us that have struggled enough and, you know, we're here <laughs> just coming yeah. out because we don't mind sharing. Well, and, and I think that's why it's so important to do some of the work, particularly around these cultural centers or around multicultural affairs as well as being part of STEM. I mean, that's, you know, obviously I'm going to put that lens on it. Um, but, you know, part of the importance of having these cultural centers is because like you said, there's not one single prescriptive path to college or higher education. And in fact, um, you know, if you really look at it, this institution was not built for people like us, right? Like this institution comes from a long history of uh, white, rich, landowning males, right? Um, and people of color, people from lower income backgrounds, um, people who are queer, um, people who are not men, this was not an institution that was necessarily built for them. Um, so having these different areas where um, the school can kind of make changes and adjustments based off of how your experiences might look is, is vitally important to help shepherd students through the process. It's, it's really important. And it's interesting to, to be in higher ed right now because um, there's a lot of conversation about decolonization and how we need right. to decolonize curriculum. We need to decolonize this. Um, and I find it sort of funny to hear that conversation. And it's funny to me because I'm like, well, first universities have to acknowledge something, which is they are colonial institutions. I mean, they, they do really have to admit, look, we're a colonial institution and we still operate in a colonial hierarchy. I mean, right. we really do. I mean, there is... I, whatever campus you're on, there is a hierarchy, there is administration, there are faculty, there are staff, and within each of those, there is this massive hierarchy. And if you are on a lower rung, you may not, your voice may not ever be heard because simply because of the title you have, right. the, the position you hold and the degrees you have. It's, been, it's an interesting thing to see, you know, particularly lecturers, uh, having been a lecturer, to see lecturers with PhDs who sat in rooms with tenure line fa tenured faculty and the tenured faculty looking well you're not tenured so why should i listen to you Th that hierarchy is there yet this is the group having a conversation on decolonization so it's sort of like right. hold the mirror up to your face realize what you're doing and it's just it's a really strange conversation to be in but i think any start of the conversation is good and we can move forward once once we all accept what we what we know and what we don't yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's it. Uh, no matter how hypocritical it may seem to have the conversation within the the realm of academia, it needs to happen anyway, right? Um, but you know, in, in particular, you know, the idea of education being a tool for colonization. The, I mean, there's no better like way to show that than through our own history with Native American Indigenous folks in this continent, mm -hmm. right? Like uh, through Indian boarding schools um, or or whatnot. Um, it's, I think that's a pretty clear sign of, of education being used as a tool for colonization right there. 
It's a perfect example. Um, the Indian boarding schools throughout the United States, that was their purpose. Their purpose was to <clears throat> erase the, the native identity and replace it with a Euro-American identity. Uh, my great-grandmother, who I was privileged to know, went was taken to the Sherman Indian Institute, now Sherman Indian High School in Riverside, California. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's still here. You know, it's not something that's left to the 1800s. There are still operational Indian boarding schools in the United States today. Yes, they are different. They run, they run differently, but they're still government-run institutions that if you get the chance and you're in Riverside, go check it out. Go drive by Sherman Indian High School. It looks like a prison. It's a concrete building, security guard at the front, barbed wire fences, the, the, it, and you see this quite a bit. But yeah, we do weaponize education quite a bit mm -hmm. um, for many purposes. And I think some of the discussion going on now throughout this country about what what do we mean, what does it mean to have an education, it, depending on who you're talking to, tells you a lot about what we think it is and what what value we hold to it. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, it's hard sometimes to sit back and I. It's hard sometimes when you hear students complain, particularly Native students. So, okay, Native students, this is me talking directly to you. <clears throat> and I will tell you the same thing I told my students at Humboldt is, you know, I'd walk in sometimes and you'd hear them, you'd hear them complaining. I have too many papers to do. I don't understand why this professor wants this. How am I supposed to have the, and go on, on, on. And I would look at them and say the same thing is, okay, you're Native, right? Yeah. Okay. You have a family member who went to boarding school? Yes. So you're sitting here complaining, sitting in a nice comfy chair about being in a place you chose to come to when they were torn away from their family, not allowed to speak their language, forced to dress a certain way, most likely physically or sexually abused, and you have complaints. And they'd always look at me like, you just played the residential school card on me. I'm like, yeah, I just did, because I can. You know, we tend to forget something and we don't necessarily always pay attention to this. And I asked them again, it's like, have you ever had dinner? <clears throat> Has someone ever made you dinner? And most of us, someone's, someone's made us dinner. And they're like, I don't understand what that's do this. It's like this. I said, did you go through the process of buying the food? Did you go through the process of prepping, making sure the timings were all right. So it all came out. No, you're getting the benefit of it. You're getting the benefit of the meal that you didn't have to do anything for. And that's where we're sort of at in education is those of us who are here now are not having to deal with the issues that our ancestors, those who came before us. I mean, my school experience is very different from my mother's when she went through school. Uh, my nieces and nephews will be very different than mine, but it's all because somebody else did that work to get us here. And you know, I think sometimes when we get caught up in the complaining, we forget that we don't actually have it as horrible as somebody else did. And we need, yeah. to, we need to acknowledge that so that we can continue to improve on that. And that's the only way we will get to a decolonial aspect is once we can keep building and acknowledge that, you know, yeah, things were horrible at one point. They're getting better. Yeah. Um, they're a lot better. And it doesn't hurt to remember that. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that building aspect is so important. And I think, you know, obviously that's not to say we can't, you can't very legitimately criticize oh. your institution of higher education, right? There's so many things to be critical of. Um, and, you know, we are trying to build, we're trying to uplift, we're trying to, you know, bring the community up together. And so part of that community lift is that we, you know, honor the sacrifices that those made before us in order for us to get to where we are so that hopefully our descendants will be in, in an even better place and it continues in that way. Oh, absolutely. And I, I don't mean to say you shouldn't criticize. I think when we criticize, we have to criticize with the intention to be constructive out of it. Is right. How do we, we identify the problem, <laughs> we do something about it rather than complain. <laughs> right. right. So, which, yeah. I don't mind a good complaining session either. That's okay. <laughs> um, so, you know, I was curious, you know, you, you talked about how you went through the first part of your undergrad experience, and then you took a break and you had your second part. And then when you came back the second part, you realized that you had completed kind of just naturalistically mm -hmm. all of the requirements for the Native American Studies major at Humboldt. So during that first few years, you were at Humboldt then, were these just classes that were of interest to you? They were just passion areas that you wanted to take? They were. They were just classes that I was like, I want to go learn more about this because it was something, you know, even growing up as a Native person, you, you know stuff, but yeah. you don't know stuff. And it was interesting to me to get into it. And I began to, uh, and it really came out of an issue that was going on with my tribe. Um, we were a recognized tribe, which means the federal government recognized that we existed and had a status, but we weren't an organized tribe. So we didn't have a formal tribal government. Mm -hmm. And so there, we were on what's called a joint reservation where two tribes coexist on a reservation. And there became some issues around that. And Congress stepped in and passed the Hoopa Yurok Settlement Act. I didn't understand what all that meant. And so these classes were sort of like, well, let me go figure out what all this is. Because I, I realized at that point, I knew enough to be dangerous. I didn't know enough to actually do anything. Mm -hmm. So that's what interests me. And I began to understand how the history of this country, of this government impacted native people and how native people have impacted it. And, you know, it became almost like a um, therapeutic therapy session to go in. I mean, you'd walk out mad a lot, right? but also became like, okay, I get this now. I, I have a better understanding of it. And it just, it's always spoke to me and I, I like the historical legal aspect of it. And so, but yeah, a lot of it was just like, wow, there's this class I can go take and it counts for something or well, right. some of the time didn't, but it was like, oh, cool. I can go do this. And it just became a natural thing that happened. Yeah, absolutely. I, and, you know, I think that resonates a lot for me, you know, having an Asian background where, you know, you, you know, you know your own experience, right? Like I know how I grew up and you know how people treated me or how I treated other people, that kind of stuff. But I don't necessarily know the historical details or the political details until I'm in a setting where it's put in front of me, such as an academic setting, right? Um, and, and suddenly your eyes are open wide where you go, oh, like this is what it was like 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago. Um, and, and again, you know, the building on the, the idea that you're building on your ancestors, like, 
that's where I come from, right? Like spiritually, culturally, that's where I come from, you know? Um, so, you know, having that ability to be able to kind of study and understand past experiences is so important. It absolutely is. And especially, you know, my main area of research is genocide studies. I look at North America, the relationship between the United States and native populations. Um, But that sort of gets overshadowed by, that overshadows the deeper part of what I do is I look at transitional justice and how communities can heal from past trauma. and you know how do we how do we look at what happened here? How do we look at things like the Sand Creek Massacre, um, the Battle of Little Bighorn, all of those things, and begin to realize that they are still impacting us today, and that in all communities, it's it's not just the Native communities, it's all communities, and and how do we how, what what do we need to do to deal with that? Um, I had a really incredible opportunity back in 2016 to. Um, be a part of a residential faculty for the Auschwitz Institute of Peace and Reconciliation. And we actually went to Auschwitz in Poland to Auschwitz and um, Auschwitz-Birkenau or Auschwitz II. Um, And I found myself doing something that I don't think I ever imagined I would do. I was in Barrack 24 at Auschwitz. And I was standing at the end of the hallway with um, Cookie, some tea and talking to a colleague and we're standing there looking out of this window with bars on it. And to the left of us, you can see the infamous gate work for freedom or freedom through work, however you wish to translate it. And I think we both thought the same thing at the same moment. Cause we looked at each other and like, Whoa, hold it. We're here talking about reconciliation. We're here working with, civilian employees of the United States. We were working with the Federal Bureau of Investigations, Custom and Border Controls, Commission, member, uh, staff members for the Congress, congr- congressional offices. And we were there giving them lectures and activities to begin to understand where deep division arises from. And it was there that, you know, I was talking to some members of the Federal Bureau of Investigation Civil Rights Division who were there. Um, in fact, one of the, the team that was there was the team that responded to the Tree of Life Massacre wow, okay. and had also responded to the Boston bombing, uh, the Boston Marathon bombing. So this was right up their alley for what they were doing. And I did a presentation on the history of the U.S and had them engage with a lot of different activities. And at the end, one of the individuals there, he had been at the um, Standing Rock protests and over the XL pipeline. And he said, I don't understand something. He's like, I represent law enforcement. We're here to protect. But when I go to interact with native communities, there's an automatic fear of me And I had to look at him and I said, well, it actually has nothing to do with you. And I don't mean to say you're not an important person. It has to do with the history of what you wear on your chest. That that star, that badge represents a history that you may not be fully cognizant of. And for whatever group we identify with, whether it's Native, African-American, Asian, whatever that is, 
we all have a history with law enforcement. We all have a history with power. And when we see those symbols of power, that history comes back to us because we know what that has meant. And as a society, we have not dealt with that yet. We haven't really delved into it. We just are sort of like, okay, it happened. Let's move on. So what I look at is how do you get both sides to realize that there is this division, number one, what's the source of that division? And how do you have a conversation around that without being accusatory? Because let's face it, none of us were here when these things happened. Mm-hmm. It's not my fault. It's not your fault. It's no one's fault currently. But we all have a responsibility to know. Right. And if we can move through that, I think we can get there. So all of, all of these things, these, these, all of these things in my life just have led up to sort of this going, oh, there's a bigger question here. And, you know, that call back to... Um, under, you know, wanting to know more about that natural desire just to take classes led to all of this. And it, it's fascinating to me is that, you know, we, we do a really good job of pointing fingers who's responsible, but we don't do a lot of really good work on how do we fix what we're doing? De- how do we really fix the underlying problem? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. That's so powerful. I think that that's incredible. Thank you for sharing that story. I think, um, you know, one of the things that popped up in my head while you're telling that is, you know, for for that cop or for anybody who hasn't really thought about it from an outside perspective, you know, our a, a lot of our exposure non for non-native people in this country, a lot of our exposure to Native Americans or Indigenous folks is through pop culture, right? Mm-hmm. And in pop culture, I mean, there's a you there's a straight line from today's police all the way back to you know sheriffs and cowboys fighting indians with badges mm-hmm. on their 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 uh, chests riding white horses like that's a direct line um from from police today to police back in the 1800s um and and you know it's 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 no wonder that you know that's like the predominant image in your head when when you think about like what you know how how uh, communities of colors look at police officers today. Yeah, it really is. That straight line is there, and yeah. we, we see it all the time. And you know, we are you know, I, I, Native people are really an interesting group because we are pop culture. <laughs> I, I hate they like that. But it's like I can walk into any classroom and be like, okay, I'm just going to ask how many of you saw Disney's Pocahontas and half the hands. Oh, how many of you have seen Twilight? Uh-huh, okay, yeah. And that's for most all groups. We all have, we can all go back to like something that represents us. And um, it, it creates this almost a uh, lack of a better terminology, the fetishization, uh, you become fetishized. And, I, and that, that's not limited to the general population. I mean, there are some people out here who have incredible academic backgrounds who are just as guilty of it. And I was in a, at a conference or seminar back in um, New Hampshire one time, this was several years ago, and it was a group of academics who brought together around the ideas of genocide and Holocaust and how we teach it and you know, dealing with different aspects of it. So we'd been together for over a week. And the whole time I was there, there was one particular um, participant 
And every time I would go do something, she'd be like, oh, I'll go with you. I'm like, okay, come with me. We'll have lunch together. She always sat next to me and everything. And I was like, I didn't, I did not, was not really paying attention. I was in, in my zone of learning and getting to meet new people. And the very last night we were there, we were at the um, their local pub having drinks and some food and there was a hockey game on and uh, my students will tell you I'm a Sharks fan and the Sharks were playing the Penguins and if they won that game they were going to go off to the playoffs and everything so we knew they were going to lose it's okay I mean that's what the Sharks <laughs> do um, you know, it's it's part of the belief that one day they will pull it out we'll see but we were sitting there and she turned to me and I, she was sitting right next to me and I'm like she said something and I didn't hear what she said because my eyes were on the game and then the next thing I know, her hand was on my shoulder petting me, just kept brushing my down. And I'm like, okay. And of course, in my head, I'm like, all right, there's a whole thing I got to explain to her. You know, that's nice. You, you're, yeah. I'm like, I'm not interested in women, but that's, and then she said something. She's like, do people find you, fa do you, people find you fascinating? I'm like, okay, this is going someplace I didn't expect it to go. And I went and I said, I, I'm not really sure. I just try to be me. She's like, no, 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 no. That's not me. She's like, it must be so fascinating to be an Indian. And it's just, and, and, the, and she kept going there. And I, and I realized at the moment, I'm like, oh, okay. You're caught up in the fantasy world and the idea. And she was got, she was, she really had always embraced this idea of native people being super spiritual, super in tune with the earth and I had to tell her, I said, I go, I think I understand what you're saying, said, but that's not the reality. We're just like everybody else. And I had to acknowledge something. She was from Eastern Europe um, and she had been heavily influenced by the works of a guy by the name of Carl Mai, who was an author who was on the same standard as JK Rowling is today. He wrote basically the Harry Potter of his time period. But what he wrote about was a guy named Vinatu, a native guy who was basically the super person good at physics, chemistry, all of these wonderful things. And she'd grown up with that idea of what a native person was. Mm. And she was projecting that onto me. So it was a really weird experience, but it was also one where knowing that particular concept of pop culture, the historical pop culture, <clears throat> put me in a position where I was able to go, okay, we need to, <laughs> we need to have a little dialogue here. And luckily one of the other people we were with realized what was going on and came over and was like, hey, do you want to go grab something over here? I'm like, oh yeah, I'll be right there. I'll be back. And I got out of the situation. Yeah. And I wish I could say that were few and far between, but it's actually more common than not. And it irks you sometimes, but other times you're like, look, okay, let's use this as an educational moment. And I always have at least three or four books in my head that I can say, you know, you should really read this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's that, it's that mystical shaman trope, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, you see that so often on TV shows or whatever. And what's difficult too, is that, you know, it, um, not only is it, ludicrous <laughs> to think about <laughs> but, um but uh um it also causes people to just not think of native or indigenous folks as real human beings well it's true people look at us like we're um something to be played with and or some or, or a massive 
or where your where your spiritual salvation and i don't mean you personally or anybody listening to this i mean that, that's just how it comes across and i've had people come up to me like well how do how do i become in tune with this and i'm like i have really no idea right i, I mean i'm i'm I grew up both in the native world and the non-native world. I grew up in a Catholic household. I grew up in a household that, you know, understood that native religions had place and a purpose in the world. There's a blend of it. And I sound like I struggle with it every day trying to figure out this component. I can tell you one thing, you got to figure things out for yourself. Um, I can't do any of that. And that's a tough one for a lot of people to get because there's this idea that that's what we're here for is, oh, we are here to solve your problem. And it's like, no, got to understand. I got my own problems to figure out. <laughs> Half the time, I don't know what I'm doing for dinner. And it's most, I'm really concerned a lot. Like, okay, am I going to cook tonight or am I going to go out? I don't know what I'm going to do, but right. there's all of that. And I think it comes from the idea that, you know, what we have done, not just to native people, but to most people of color is we've turned them into a literal resource right it's our job whether we like it or not this is our job that we've been given is to educate everybody else about us even though we're responsible for learning everything about everybody else. and it's like okay when, when does this cycle actually stop right. <laughs> i don't know that we have that answer yet right um uh i hate to cut this a little bit short but we are running a little bit yeah. out of time we're, we're right up at the end of our our time, but I really appreciate us, you know, you sharing and us being able to dive in on this stuff. Mm -hmm. I really wanted to ask one last question, though, which is, you know, uh, in light of the fact that we are in a college um, and we might have mm -hmm. students watching or listening to this, um, what sort of advice would you give folks um, uh, around, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, finding success, finding community, um, you know, empowering them? Uh, what, what would you say to students? I normally end my classes when we're face-to-face -face by saying the same thing. And that is go out and learn something new and don't forget to breathe. And I say this all semester long and students look at me like I'm insane. And in the last class I always explain what I mean is, this is a really amazing opportunity right now that we're in college, we're at the university, we're at an institution of higher ed. There's so much you can do read the bulletin boards, read your email, see where those things are that you're interested, go. Even if you're sitting or standing in the back of the room ready to run out because you don't feel comfortable, at least go, watch the video lectures. Wander into the cultural centers, into Mosaic, into in, just wander in. There's somebody there that will say hello to you. I guarantee somebody will at least say hello and that will lead to a conversation. Your professors are not going to bite you. We are not here to hurt. Yes, we can be very scary, I admit it. But, <laughs> you know, we're actually human beings. So take that opportunity every day to learn something new, whether it's academic, whether it's personal, whether it's going into a part of the library or building you've never been in. And the other thing is, this is going to get overwhelming. And it may be overwhelming on a daily, hourly basis it's going to get overwhelmed um and there's nothing we can do that because to do about that because life happens whether we want it to or not you're going to have to take time to sit down and just breathe and take as much air in as you can while it's free because i'm guaranteeing you someone will find a way to monetize it 
take it in and breathe and just realize there are things you're going to be able to fix today. There are things you can fix tomorrow and then there are things that are just never going to get fixed. Mm-hmm. And just take it in stride because this is not a hundred yard dash. This is really a very long, long marathon. And understand that pretty much everyone on this campus who's in a position of authority, whether it's the president, the provost, the directors of centers, your professors have all struggled. And we've made it through, maybe not always in the best way, but we've made it through. And don't, you know, come talk to us. You know, we, we, we are here to help and we know what it's like not to be able to catch your breath. And we're going to help you out. Awesome. That's perfect. Thank you so much, Carrie. Um, if anybody wants to try to find you, how would they be able to try to find you or the humanities department? So the humanities department is located on the fourth floor of Clark Hall. So right across from the statues of Tommy Smith and Juan Carlos, just come on in. Uh, finding me, we're a virtual world right now. So the easiest way to find me is via email. So it's my name, Carrie, K-E-R-R-I dot Malloy, M-A-L-L-O-Y at sjsu.edu. You can drop me an email anytime. If you're super bored and would like a cure for insomnia, I do have a Facebook and Instagram, (laughs) Twitter, all set up for students. So it's just the app sign and then Carrie J. Malloy. You can check those out. And I don't mind if students DM me through those or not. Um, That's pretty cool. Uh, In fact, I tend to find students prefer to just send DMs and emails. So, but yeah, come on by and check it out. And once we're back face to face, I'm also on the fourth floor of Clark Hall and just come on in. Perfect. Thank you so much, Carrie. We'll put all the links below and everywhere. Um, Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. It was really great talking to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is great. Don't call it lost culture, call it revitalization. Language is our seed and we're growing through the pavement. Syllabics the roots, dialect is our leaves. Flower is our power and community our tree. We've come too damn far for us to ever give up. Now it's time to elevate each other, truly rise up. The only real battle is the battle within. Once you believe in yourself, then your journey will begin. My mother is sacred, she's a survivor for real. Though it's taken her and I so many decades to heal. Still we persevere cause we got dreams to fulfill. Like my sis equal said, success. Is a good kill. I be killing it and doing this amongst my sisters. Heal beside our men and truly educate the youngsters. They rely on us, and so we gotta stay tough to make your offering with unconditional love.